This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu for more information. According to Hal Serkin, senior partner and managing director at the Boston Consulting Group, the age of globalization is over. In its place is a new reality that Serkin and BCG colleagues Jim Hemmerling and Arindam Bhattacharya define in their recently published book, Globality, competing with everyone from everywhere for everything. In an interview with Knowledge at Wharton, Serkin describes how rapidly developing economies like India and China have changed global business from a one-way street benefiting Western multinationals to a two-way competition in which blending the best of the East with the best of the West is most likely the winning formula. Hal, thank you very much for joining us today. Nicole, great to be with you. Now, you call your book Globality, but isn't it really about globalization? Well, McCool, you know, one thing we've found is that the age of globalization is actually over. Globalization was really a one-way street. It was about the companies from the U.S. and Europe and then later on Japan going to the rapidly developing economies with, you know, large populations and very low wage rates and either producing product or buying product, shipping it back to the developed markets, and then shipping over some very high-end, often luxury goods to those markets. So it's fundamentally a one-way street. What's changed over the last few years with the rise of China and India, Russia, South America, uh, Eastern Europe, uh, Brazil, uh, is really a move to be a two-way street. Because what we've seen over the last five years is not just the companies from the West coming to India and China, et cetera, but companies from India and China and Russia and Brazil becoming real companies who are not just operating in their local markets, but who are actually taking their rightful place on the global stage. And in doing so, they are now starting to challenge the traditional companies that have been multinational companies. Now it's a two-way street, and it's a competition. That competition means that companies from India, like Tata, or companies from China, like Bao Steel, play on the global stage. And they compete now with the Western companies to be able to have these roles. That's globality. And it is about the lifting up of 15 to 20 percent of the world's population from what is the, the trying to get the minimum requirements to get through the day in terms of calories to starting to become part of the consumer society. What is the triple E threat and what are some of the ways in which it manifests itself? Well, I'm not so sure it's a threat, but we're really talking about competing with everyone from everywhere for everything. And I think that's what you mean by the triple E. Um, It is a threat to companies that don't understand it uh, because it is about those companies from the developing countries who have a set of advantages um, that you may overlook as potential competitors. And they may start showing up in the U.S., they may start showing up in Europe, they may start showing up in Japan. But oftentimes people forget that they are starting to build positions that will start to threaten potential businesses. But of course, as every threat is, it's often an opportunity. And those opportunities are for the companies in the West to understand what's taking place and act many ways like the challengers, operate properly in those markets so they can take advantage of those and bring the best of the West and the best of the East to bear. So while it is a threat in some ways to the way that business is done, it can be very much an opportunity for Western companies. I wonder if you could explain a little bit more about your concept of globality. How does it differ from, say, Tom Friedman's ideas about the world being increasingly flat? 
Well, actually, we don't think the world is flat at all. We think the world is very spiky. Um, I think Thomas Friedman wrote a great book, and it really awakened people to what's taking place in the world and the changes that are taking place. And it's a wonderful title, The World is Flat. But the reality is the world is very spiky, and that's precisely why this is happening. Uh, if the world had the same wage rates everywhere, we wouldn't have seen the rise of this. If the world had the same capabilities everywhere, we wouldn't have seen it. And so what it is is companies who are operating environments with different spikes are beginning to take the advantages of those spikes, so low-cost labor, and use it to compete in areas where labor is high cost. They then use that position that they've built to be able to invest in research and development, to invest in new product development, to invest in distribution. And in the case of companies like Tata, the $25 billion company in India, buy companies like Jaguar and Cora Steel, uh, the Anglo-Dutch, well, was Anglo-Dutch company, to be able to build real strong positions on those markets. And as we see that happening, uh, you know, we, we see that environment changing. Now, what are the implications for companies in places like India and China? What are the opportunities and threats that globality presents for them? Well, it, it, for them, they see the same opportunities and threats in many ways as the Western companies. If you're in those markets, it's a tremendous opportunity because if you're operating in an environment where wage rates are about a dollar an hour and maybe rising at 8% a year versus in the U.S. at $25 an hour, raising at 2.5% a year, or in Germany at about $50 an hour now with the euro now approaching $1.60, um, you end up, end up in a position where you have a tremendous advantage. And that means you can use that advantage. Uh, it also, though, means if you sit back and you just stay locally, you will end up losing advantage over time. And that's because it's more than just wages that matter and how businesses compete. Uh, and so if you want to produce low-end product, you can take care, you can do it that way. But you need to step out into other markets because you need to learn about how and bring the best of the rest of the world to bear on your own business. And of course, if you're in India and you're just sitting in India or you're in China and you're just sitting in China and you're not taking a global perspective, your competitors in India or China may come into your market and take your position. So the world is going to get, I guess, in some sense, um, much more competitive. But the companies who are going to compete are going to ones who have balanced things. Low costs will not just be enough to win, because at this point in time, just about anybody can access low cost in China and low cost in India and low cost in Brazil. So it's a great way to start, because $1 versus $25, all else equal, you know which one's going to win. But over time, of course, everybody's going to have access to lower costs. So if that's the case, what are the implications for companies in more mature markets? Uh, what should be their strategy to globalize? Well, it's about picking the right locations to go. Um, and it's more than just going to those countries and acquiring low-cost labor and producing things and exporting them. Because uh, if you look at the population in India, it's about 1.1 billion people. China's about 1.3, 1.4 billion people. So we're talking about 2.5 billion people. Those are huge markets. And interestingly enough, if you look at the overall rapidly developing economies, that's about 3.5 billion. We think over the next 20 years, there's going to be another billion uh, consumers added to those marketplaces who can now move again from absolute poverty to becoming consumers. That's a billion people entering the consumer market. That means a lot of opportunities for consumer products, but also a lot of 
opportunities for companies who make things for businesses and businesses who sell to those consumers. Recognize a billion people is more than the combined population of the U.S. and Western Europe and Japan overall. It is a huge opportunity, and if you sit in Chicago, or you sit here in Philadelphia, or you sit in Paris, or you sit in Frankfurt, and you ignore a billion-person market, you're going to regret that opportunity, that you missed that opportunity. Do you see any companies that haven't missed it and who actually are pursuing creative strategies to access that uh, billion-person market? We, well, we see a lot of companies doing that. Uh, perhaps one of the best examples is Nokia. Uh, Nokia, the uh, Scandinavian um, manufacturer of uh, cellular telephones, you know, they, they had built a position in China uh, in the early days in the, just the advent of cellular telephone technology. Uh, and they were selling, in a traditional way, the higher cost Western product in that marketplace. And when cell phone demand was relatively low and only the super rich could afford the cell phones, that wasn't really an issue. However, uh, a bunch of local companies came in and started producing cell phones at much lower cost. Demand increased, uh, and they started to lose market share. And, of course, those cell phone companies started to move up the chain uh, and started to attack nuclear traditional markets. Now, the traditional response to that is to basically retreat. Nokia was much smarter than that and said, no, actually, I have to stand my ground here, and I have to fight the battle for the customer. And they rethought what they did. They rethought their product development, and they moved product development to China and changed the fundamental product so that it met the needs of the Chinese consumer. Uh, it also, they also found a way to, to produce a very quality product at a much lower cost as they did that, that, again, met the needs of the Chinese consumer better. They changed their distribution system because they recognized that they couldn't rely on the traditional third-party distribution system. They might be able to rely on it for the physical distribution, but when it came to sales and understanding the customers, particularly the, the retailers, they had to be there themselves with their own people. And so Nokia went from a 30 share down to a share probably in the low teens and is now back to where they were in the past uh, because they stood their ground. And that gave, this gave Nokia an incredible learning experience because it means they now understand how to operate in markets like China uh, that are now in the rest of the rapidly developing economy. So it, it's one of those stories that you, I think, can take many lessons from. But the lesson is you have to be there, you have to learn, and retreat, for the most part, is not an option. How much does it erode uh, the competitive advantage of emerging challengers from these countries when multinational companies set up, set up operations there? Well, it, it may, I, I think it's always easier when you start from there to understand what it takes to operate there, uh, just as it's hard for uh, Chinese companies to come to the U.S. and operate. So even if you hire local people, uh, there's a huge gap between the corporate center, which may be, in, in, again, in Philadelphia, uh, and the operations, which may be in Bangalore. <laughs> and it, that is a real disadvantage. Now, of course, they, the, the Western companies have advantages. So it reduces the advantage of the local company. But if the local company's smart, right, it takes advantage of that difference. And it also says, now you've come my way. I'm going to go your way. <laughs> and I'm going to start to learn about how to operate in Philadelphia and in Los Angeles and in Paris. And I'm going to start selling my product in those places. And again, it will become a, a significant competitive battle. This is why we think globality is about completing with everyone from everywhere for everything. So it will balance out 
eventually. Well, balance out because there will be competitive dynamics and there'll be losers who come from the rapidly developing economies and there'll be losers who come from the developed economies. Uh, and a new equilibrium will eventually settle in in some way. But it will be a long time before that happens because there's a lot of change to take place. And of course, as we're seeing now with oil prices and raw material prices and food prices and, and, and fundamental inflation, this is what we mean by competing not just everyone from everywhere, but everything. Because historically, competition has been about product. But the reality is now the resources of human capital is what's being competed over. As we see uh, in India, um, you know, you hire somebody, and then six months later, your competitor hires them for a lot more money if they're very talented. There's a huge uh, competition for human resources. If you look at access to raw materials, there will be massive competition for that. Uh, we're seeing increasing competition for intellectual capital. So the basis of competition that this new equilibrium is starting to create is also different. And you have to start thinking about the pricing and sourcing of all these, they're not commodities at this point in time, but all these important ingredients to, to run your company uh, in a very different way. You, you referred to the fact that there'll be winners and losers, uh, both among the challengers as well as among the in incumbents. What separates the winners from the losers? I mean, how can you ensure that you don't become a loser? Well, I don't think you can ever insure it, but I think it's about changing the odds. And I think it is the willingness to understand the other paradigm. <laughs> that, in fact, it is about understanding, again, if I, as I live in Chicago, and I think about it, if I take a U.S.-centric perspective, um, I will get one solution. If I go to India, <laughs> I will think about a different solution. The right answer is neither. The right answer is the right blend of both of those solutions. And so the way to ensure that you're going to succeed, again, the same way that Nokia learned in the prior example I shared, is to be able to blend those two forces together. Uh, what I like to say is the best of the East and the best of the West, because that's more likely the winning formula. And we call it somewhat pinpointing, which is deciding what you're going to do where. And so if I look at a company like uh, an Indian company in Bharat Forge, in Pune, India, who is probably now the third largest manufacturer of forgings in the world. They make some very important decisions, and they don't just focus on low cost. They've made acquisitions in Germany, they've made acquisitions in China, they've made acquisitions in different parts of the world to be able to be close to the customer, to be able to get access to technology. And so what they're doing is they're blending the best of both, and they're saying, I'm okay being a high-cost competitor in some places because it's worth it. I can charge the right price for it. I can learn the right skills for it. So I don't have to be just a low-cost competitor. And they've done an excellent job of blending who they are. Again, if you sit in a corporate center and you don't see that, you're about ready to lose. If you sit in a far-out place somewhere in the world that's away from that and you're not thinking about how in a developing market you will be more like a developed company, you will probably lose. It's the blend that will probably win. But isn't it also true that some lessons are easier to learn than others? And I'll tell you what I mean. Uh, if you take companies like uh, IBM or Accenture, they've set up big operations in India now for their IT practices. They have hundreds of thousands of employees there. So in that sense, you're absolutely right. They are able to match the, the low-cost operations of companies like Infosys or Wipro right. or TT, TCS. On the other hand, the Indian IT companies like Infosys and Wipro have always had a challenge developing relationships with customers. Uh, 
uh, in in the Western countries, which is distance, which is what the Accentures and IBMs have excelled at. You know, so in in that kind of a dynamic, it's it's in some ways almost seems to me that it's easier for IBM to create a production backend that can mimic the costs of the Indian challengers, but not that easy for the Indian challengers to develop the customer relationships of the incumbents. How, how do you think that dynamic will well, play out? I, well, I think there's one more thing that needs to go in the dynamic, which is the creativity. If you sit in the West, there's a paradigm that you begin with, and it's very hard to recognize that you think that way. If you sit in India, there's another paradigm, and I would say in the West, it's a very traditional engineering uh, mindset that takes a lot of things for granted because we're used to that. If you sit in India or you sit in China, there's a lot of things that you don't know. And actually, that's very helpful not to know. So if you look at products that are designed, like the Tata Nano, the small $2,500 one-lock car, you would, if you ask people in Detroit, is that possible six months a year ago, or Stuttgart for that matter, they would say, no, you can't do that. Well, the reality is you can, uh, and Tata is proving it. Uh, and so as I look at these situations, you begin to realize there's a level of creativity that exists as well that may be leveling that playing field. Again, the world's not flat, but there may be a level of competition that will eventually equilibrium out. You mentioned rising oil prices and you know, the Tata Nano, the emergence of this inexpensive car. Well, what other ways will people, everyday consumers, recognize the emergence of this process um, outside of business? Well, we're, we're seeing it in all sorts of places. So, you know, my son is a junior in, in college, and I certainly would love him to go to Wharton. But his competition is going to be far more fierce than when I applied in 1976. I would presume, I don't know the numbers, but there's probably 20 or 30 percent of the students here were not born in the United States, and that will probably go up over time. So as we think about my children's future, uh, and my son is 17, and he's looking at colleges, uh, he's going to have to face a greater level of competition from around the world. Uh, so it's it's competing for everything, and everything is the right to go to Wharton. We're all talking about this global slowdown, and especially the credit crunch in the U.S. and the mature economies. Uh, does that affect the process of globality at all? Uh, it may speed it up a little bit. It may speed it up a little bit uh, because there'll be more pressure on lower costs. Uh, which, of course, is one of the advantages. Uh, that may create more Western companies going for lower costs that may also create the ability for more companies to come from India, China, Russia, Brazil. But it also will probably mean more M&A, and that may be more outbound M&A from the developing world. And then outbound M&A will give brands and more technology to those companies at possibly a lower price. Hal, thanks so much for joining us today. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you, McCool and Steve. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.